You've likely heard of the Great Reset, a term popularized by Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum last year in the wake of COVID. However, various forms of this idea have been floating around for many years, and our next guest, Christian Takushi, has been discussing this more from a geopolitical and macroeconomic angle on how we are seeing what he calls a great convergence, which ultimately may culminate in a great reset or transition this decade. So in order to properly understand this concept of a great reset, we need to first understand this idea of a great convergence, as you've been discussing for many years on your website and presenting to global audiences, because one ultimately leads to the other. Can you tell us about the convergence that you see underway and when it first started? We've seen a lot of people reacting in different ways, some more positive or negative, to the concept of a reset or a great reset. And um, unfortunately, many people have uh, taken the view that this idea of a reset must, must have been something that some elites uh, figure out some time ago. And um, now we're just little puppets and in a tough chess game when these um, ideas are being implemented. So someone has figured it out and now some, uh, you know, elites, uh, government elites are implementing it and um, we are being the victims. But within my independent global geopolitical and macroeconomic research, we came already in the year 2010 to the conclusion that we are in the midst of a, a great convergence of uh, many different um, trends, developments around the world, in the military realm, in the macroeconomic realm, policymaking realm, monetary realm, actually, then also in the geopolitical realm, security realm, in different areas, and that um, they may be beginning to collide or overlap uh, from the year 2017, 2018 onwards. It is a multi-year process, and, um, and it will cause as this advances, it will cause actually uh, quite a lot of changes in the world. And when many processes overlap more or less at the same time, you get friction. And that friction leads normally to uh, some conflicts, but also change. And this is what we're dealing with. So my analysis would rather uh, convey the idea that what is happening uh, is very unlikely to have just been designed by some some world leaders, you know, uh, somewhere, you know, in Brussels or in the United States. This is something bigger than just uh, what a group of, you know, policymakers could have figured out 20, 30 years ago. Explain how you trace this great convergence and inevitable reset, as I believe you have said you think we'll see sometime this decade. But how you connect that to events that we saw around the 70s and the 80s. Monetarily, central banks decided to put aside any kind of discipline, gold being a kind of discipline on central banks and being allowed to print as much money as they wanted. And they have been printing ever more money since 1975. So there, the 70s, uh, I mentioned the 70s because we had kind of a watershed moment in monetary policy, but also in, in overall shared values in society. But if you go to geopolitics and the military realm, that might be one decade later, right? So it's not, it's not the same time for all of them. 
as we mentioned with you in the past, you know, a lot of people look at the stock market today and they say stocks are disconnected from the economy. And when that question was posed to you in the past, you had said yes, but that has been true again, going all the way back to the 70s or 80s when we really saw that decoupling, this great decoupling first occur. So you mind delving into that a little bit for us to understand this context of the great convergence leading up to a great reset. And I'm very glad that you put that in perspective, Chris, because that uh, notion of the financial market decoupling from the real economy is very vital, central to this big, you know, reset, you know, it, it is affecting the economy, hence also politics, policies, but also the monetary conditions, right? Um, as a result of the money printing by central banks since the mid 70s, and the policies instituted by big governments to promote, uh, especially in the West, to promote bigger companies, you know, uh, ever bigger companies, um, and a few other policies, I'm just mentioning two. Um, we saw from the 1980s that uh, the value of global trade was going up, accounting profits were shooting, were also going up. GDP was going up very strongly, but the salaries of people were stagnating. And they have continued to stagnate over the last 40 years. In the meantime, accounting profits, corporate profits, GDP, and the volume, the value of traded goods, you know, global trade has exploded. So when people told me, when people went out in spring last year, when the economy collapsed, but the stock market went up dramatically, they said the stock market has decoupled from economic reality. This is a sell. A lot of experts came out and says, you have to sell all your stocks because the stock market has decoupled from economic reality. I came out. I didn't tell people to buy stocks. I just told them, be cautious with that idea. The equity market has been <laughs> decoupling from the real economy for the last 40 years. And it's doing pretty well so. So I just put it into perspective. This money printing that our central banks are doing is not something that they are doing because they like it and they're doing that to oppress us, as some people are putting it. Society has changed in a way, uh, and allow me to put it this way, where people say, I don't want any more recessions. You know, people, consumers say, I don't want any more recessions. I want the government to finance my new home. Corporate leaders saying, we don't want any profit recession. We want to continue growing. So this is also something that is happening in society. Also retirees saying, I don't know what you're gonna, what you're gonna do, but I want my pension safe. So when people don't accept corrections anymore, what else can central banks do but continue to print money? So I also want to say here, um, my independent research shows and analysis shows it's difficult to point a finger to the World Economic Forum or to the central bankers or the United Nations or someone and say, yeah, these people are doing this reset. Now, I, I wanted to say this is a systemic convergence. This is a, a great convergence of massive trends. And on, for some of these important trends, for instance, the political ones and the economic ones, the monetary ones, most of us are involved. Most of us are playing a role here. So we are the consumers or the retirees. Because of our needs, our express needs, central banks are not able to do what they used to do. 
So it's difficult for us just to point fingers and say, oh, these evil central bankers are destroying the economy. I think it is, um, yes, they bear some responsibility, but so do we. I mean, honestly, we all try to minimize pain. We try to minimize discomfort in our individual lives. And collectively, that holds true as well. And so policymakers have been doing everything that they can to eliminate either or suppress recessions, pain. And that was, I would say, put into overdrive, as you pointed out, in the 70s and 80s when suddenly the dollar was disconnected from any type of anchoring mechanism. So once we disconnected from gold at that point, we've been on uh, really money printing in, in overdrive. And so that money has allowed the stock market, the financial markets to decouple from economic reality ever since then. Yes. On this deficit spending, I think this is very important because I would like to go back to what Professor Schwab said right, in Switzerland, that um, this is a window of opportunity that we can use to reset the world economy. Okay, COVID alone has not provided the opportunity. Never. COVID is a pandemic, but it's not the worst pandemic the world has seen in the last 1,000 years. There have been worse pandemics than this. Actually, COVID is not a huge crisis. The huge crises are just about to come. This is just, I would say, if I try to look out the next 20, 25 years, this COVID crisis will probably be seen as a mid-sized crisis, looking back, maybe from the year 2050. COVID alone has not made this possible, what Professor Schwab is suggesting. COVID is just the last, I would say, the last element that has joined, right? Um, this deficit spending, um, how is it possible? How is it possible that when Argentina starts to print money to finance its, its deficit, you know, we increase interest rates on Argentinian bonds by a lot, and Argentina has to pay more than 10% on its 10-year debt? Well, Argentina has to do it, but when we do it, when we start to print money to pay our to finance our huge deficits and to pay out. Uh, to, to finance our COVID handouts, we allow our government to fix the 10-year interest rate on our debt at 1%, 1.5%. We allow that and we look away. We are in as much a problem or trouble as Argentina is. Of course, there are some differences, right? <laughs> but yeah, allow me to just to, to put it that way. When you, when you are basically... <laughs> Uh, technically bankrupt, and you no longer have money to finance your current spending, your deficit, and you have to print money to do that. Normally, financial markets, investors have to demand immediately a very high interest rate. That's how things go back into normal. It, it's painful, but thanks to the reaction of investors, that country realizes they cannot continue to do that. They have to do something, right? May it take five years, seven years, but that's how the healing begins with the, some medicine that will hurt at the beginning. In the West, in the West, investors, big banks, big insurances, retirees, uh, normal people, consumers, they all have looked away. They all have looked away when our central banks began to print money to finance our huge government debt and government deficits. We have looked away. We accept that our 10-year uh, bond yields are rigged. I say rigged or fixed at something like 1%. Uh, 
while, in fact, they should be reflecting economic realities and actually be around 7% for the United States, but above 10% for most Western European countries. Now, that behavior that we have shown over the last 12 years plus has allowed an environment that allowed Mr. Schwab to say what he said. So it's not COVID alone. We cannot just, uh, it, would be, it would be easy to point the fingers on China and say, yeah, only because of the Chinese, um, the World Economic Forum is suggesting this. It would be too easy, I think. So starting in the 70s, again, we disconnected the U.S. dollar, the world's reserve currency, from any physical constraint. Prior to then, it was connected to gold. That was causing a problem because France was demanding that all the excess dollars that they were accumulating via trade with us be converted back into gold. So we had to uh, very quickly stop that. Otherwise, we would lose all of our gold reserves. We disconnected. We broke the gold standard. That was actually 50 years ago. We just celebrated the 50-year anniversary of that um, in August. So that was when we seemed to see a large amount of these things start to occur with a grand convergence. And I think we can trace a lot of this back to then because now we live in a very relativistic world, right? Uh, You don't have a monetary system that's anchored to a physical constraint. Uh, to a, 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 a benchmark that everyone can agree upon. Now all currencies are floating relative to one another. And in that, you have the U.S., you have other central banks printing trillions and trillions of dollars to suppress every economic dislocation we saw with COVID, the largest amount of money printing we've ever seen in an attempt to clearly try to suppress or stave off worst case scenario of another Great Depression. That's at the monetary realm and and perhaps even at the financial realm. Where do you see this grand convergence taking place on the geopolitical front? On the geopolitical front, um, we are seeing a competition, a renewed competition out there in the world. Um, Well, it's it's very obvious that China is uh, rising, but it's also, for me, clear that Russia... um, wants to reemerge. And we also have some other regional powers like Turkey and uh, Iran that are rising in their own right and in their own regions. All of this is making things a bit complicated. You have on the one hand, uh, America's supremacy, um, you know, uh, still being the status quo, but you also have uh, quite a number of European nations pushing forward a multilateral, you know, system uh, yeah, where Europe, China, and the United States have a say. But then you also have um, other, other regimes or other countries that would like to have a, a, a bigger disruption, right? Uh, because that disruption will allow them to advance their interests a little bit better. I actually believe that the geopolitical system is in a kind of disarray at the moment. Where I disagree is uh, with people that say America is down and out. This is where I strongly disagree. I think theoretically the United States could stay the the supreme military power and geopolitical power for an extended period of time, but the risks to it are rising. I believe that um, that Russia is building capabilities, and so is China, that could actually alter that. 
they're building capabilities that are aiming at, uh, at the U.S. Um, at the greatest uh, vulnerabilities of the United States. The biggest threat I see at the moment is that many people in the West, and some of the leading geopolitical strategies are underestimating Russia, saying, oh, they're, they're, they're bankrupt, they're out. They will never attack us because, they will never, never attack us because they don't have money. It's not in their best interest. I, um, I, I strongly disagree with that view. I think the United States has to remain alert and also invest uh, to recalibrate to the new capabilities that uh, America's enemies are developing at the moment. So that remains a threat to U.S. supremacy. One area that is very important and that many people are overlooking is military supremacy. Many people that say America is uh, going out or going down quickly are people that uh, base that on the decline of the dollar. They say the dollar is going to disappear uh, very soon, it's going to collapse very soon, or it's going to be replaced very soon as a world currency. And well, with that, the U.S. supremacy will go too. And uh, they underestimate the importance of military supremacy. The U.S. dollar is the world currency to a large extent because the United States patrols and secures and polices the maritime sea, the maritime lanes, the trading routes that connect the world that uh, allow 80, 90% of world trade to take place are protected by the United States Navy and armed forces and also along, alongside some of the US allies, Japan, Australia, you know, Great Britain, et cetera. It is the United States that provides the security for our trading routes. China doesn't, Russia doesn't, the EU doesn't even have a Navy. They deserve that name, the project's power. So, or deterrence. So when people are, are I'm, I think it is remarkable that such, uh, uh, such academic heavy, when very, very um, excellent academic heavyweights uh, make statements that the US dollar is in its way out. And so the US, I mean, it cannot be ruled out. It cannot be ruled out. It is a possibility there. Uh, I work with probabilities and that's a certain probability. But I think if, um, if we would see the monetary reform happening very soon with uh, the dollar being replaced by, a, let's say, a digital dollar or a digital currency, the United States would be definitely spearheading that change. I don't think that anybody can introduce today a new world currency without the United States being involved in that process. I think it is maybe a little bit of wishful thinking out there. Military supremacy, security matters. No security, no trade. No trade, no economic uh, prosperity. And the United States is the one providing that military security today. That's very clear. When it comes to the monetary convergence that's underway, again, a lot of this is connected to events that we saw take place in the 70s and 80s with the break of the gold standard. But you've also been discussing this idea of an exit strategy on the part of central banks away from the current system and where crypto fits into that. Do you mind sharing your thoughts on how you see crypto relating to this uh, this broader process at work? Yeah, thank you, Chris, for asking that. Um, this crypto uh, blockchain realm is also a very important part of this overall uh, reset. And yeah, my... My view on crypto is very different from the consensus out there. Um, 
crypto is being seen as the good guy, <laughs> just to put it that way. Um, and uh, my independent analysis has been shown for a number of years already. Um, something very interesting. The biggest beneficiary of cryptocurrencies, by far, being central banks themselves. And when analysis of analysis was pointing to that, it started really to, to, to try to understand that. And um, it, it, it is being our conclusion again and again that cryptocurrencies and blockchain in general is a central part of central banks' uh, exit strategy. Uh, they are working on an exit strategy because they've been printing huge amount of money uh, they're printing money at an ever faster pace, and they can continue doing that for generations to come. Uh, at one point, uh, an endogenous or more likely an exogenous shock will put a sad end to all this. People, retirees, consumers, they want they want like the music to stop. They like their lives as they are. They won't change it. But an exogenous shock would put a sudden end to this, and it could be. Um, it could be the end of the system as a whole. So central banks cannot take that risk. They also have been advised by, by the different governments that uh, geopolitical risks are on the increase, are on the rise. So they cannot take chances. They need an exit strategy for this, I would call it bankrupt uh, or utterly debased paper monetary system. And they have two problems. Um, they have actually already figured out they need something that would, uh, would give them also quite a bit of freedom. They, don't want, they want freedom. After 40, 50 years of freedom, they don't want to be without freedom. Um, they're happy to accept a certain discipline for intervening, transitory, tra transition, that's okay. But after that, they want full freedom again. So it's got to be a digital currency. That's something the central banks, key central banks figure out many years ago already. But they got two massive problems to achieve that. First, how did you test that? How do you test that? You cannot test a digital currency having your employees, central bankers, you know, just participating in a small blockchain uh, exercise. You can't do that. You need vast circles of society, massive number of people of different um, spaces, different countries participating in it. So you can watch the behavior of people, the participants, and what they do whenever you shock the system with interest rate fears or inflation fears or political crisis, you need to test it. You need data, lots of data before you introduce your own digital currency. You need a dry run. Okay, second problem, how do you control gold prices? As, as you print more money, the prices of certain assets will increase. If you have hyperinflation, in the stock market, bond market, and real estate market, how do you keep people from uh, buying gold? How do you keep gold from rising? Gold <laughs> may increase in value as a, as a response to this inflation or hyperinflation in financial assets. How do you control the price of gold? If you try to say nobody is allowed to own gold, it would be too obvious. It won't work. It may actually backfire. You can control very easily as the government. You can control uh, the bond yield. You can control the yield curve. You can control uh, the 10-year bond yield in every G7 government. It's very easy. You can be sure in investors the way they are now, they will just look the other way. They are. They do for 12 years already. 
But to control the price of gold, maybe a bit more difficult. So you need to introduce a very good competitor to gold, the currency that gives people freedom from the government, right? So it has to be seen as something really different, independent of government, uh, like a subversive, uh, you know, Robin Hood currency, something really that if you really hate the government, if you really hate government control, if you believe the system is overdue, you have to own this. And it has to be more volatile than gold because that will attract also all the people that want to make money as well. And the best idea for this is to introduce a, a type of cryptocurrency or to facilitate or promote the creation of cryptocurrencies. These cryptocurrencies is what we see today. And I believe that um, it's been a great uh, experiment. I believe that these cryptocurrencies are a superb idea. Um, I don't want to say that they were all originated by central banks, but central banks have been the greatest promoters of this. And they have they had to be very smart at that because the, the cryptocurrencies had to be seen as completely opposite, independent of central banks. Actually, cryptocurrencies are the ones who are challenging the central bank system, right? So this, I believe, is genius. And in my latest, I think it was my latest newsletter, I, I said it, I believe this is this is being genius by central banks. Not all central banks have been involved with this. Uh, my research shows it's being analysis shows being a few key Western central banks that have been behind this. But once they have enough data, once they have enough data about the behavior of digital currencies under different scenarios and circumstances, political, geopolitical, but especially financial, they can start actually closing the gaps, introducing regulation. Uh, saying, for instance, okay, it's unfair that crypto investors are not paying taxes uh, and that so many criminals are using it too. So we need to bring transparency into it. They need to report, which is already what uh, the U.S. Congress has already foreseen in the infrastructure bill, right? So uh, transparency has to come. It's, uh, it's immoral that <laughs> such a big market doesn't pay taxes and is not reg regulated and is untransparent. It can be abused by criminals. So uh, at one point, when the government has enough information, they have to rein into it. They can actually bring it under the control. And governments are ready now to launch their own digital currency, which is what would make sense, actually. If, uh, if we go into digital currency, I personally would also prefer to have a government-sanctioned Fed or organized digital currency rather than some currency, digital currency organized by some obscure person in Japan. That's just my personal view. So in sum, in the 70s and the 80s, we saw the gold standard broken. This allowed for unrestricted money printing on a vast scale. Anytime we saw a recession or economic contraction, that policy has been used. And this has led to, over the past 40, 50 years, a great decoupling between financial markets and economic realities to the point where now we have an everything rally like you said you know we see extremely high asset prices if you're looking at real estate or if you're looking at bonds or if you're looking at stocks everything has rallied and at this point there's really no outlet the outlet would be cash ostensibly you know if if there were to be another correction people they don't want to see people rushed cash and um, see a great crash in all of these different asset markets all at once. So part of this exit strategy 
in staving off uh, a risk of all these things crashing at once and perhaps people fleeing to safe haven assets like gold or cash is the use of a central bank currency. So connect the dots for us today. It sounds like you believe the great reset that we're culminating towards. And if you have any idea on a timeline, please feel free to share that. But it sounds like it's culminating towards a rollout of a global central bank digital currency, or at least for many central banks, um, rolling out and implementing central bank digital currencies, perhaps confiscating cash outright, or even confiscating other decentralized cryptocurrencies and replacing it for the central bank digital currency. Is that part of the process that you see underway? I would have to say yes, because of the risks, the massive risks that will pop up in that transition, this will have to be organized and controlled. Um, so we are dealing here with a controlled transition. And uh, COVID, uh, as you mentioned, uh, is an accelerator. COVID is, in a way, something that is allowing policymakers to accelerate parts of this transition. Um, yes, um, in the monetary realm and financial realm, uh, we are now accelerating pretty fast towards a, um, uh, the launching of a digital currency. And uh, actually, thanks to COVID, but also thanks to all the cryptocurrency investors. Uh, cryptocurrency investors have helped central banks immensely. They've been trading in and out. They've been uh, also responding to news. Government uh, said, okay, we're going to regulate them. And they immediately watched the reaction of them. So governments have been doing a lot of news and they've been watching the reaction of those investors. Um, yes, I, I'm actually finishing my part here now by saying thanks to COVID, but also thanks to the, the, the millions of crypto investors around the world, central banks, policymakers have been able to accelerate uh, the preparations for the launching of a new digital currency. And um, it's not the only scenario. Um, I'm, I'm following four different scenarios uh, that are more or less likely, but the launching of a digital currency is the most likely scenario for the monetary system. Okay. And I would imagine that in that type of scenario, we would not see the use of cash because as we've seen with uh, covid dramatic decline in the use of cash because people are concerned about germs, of course. And if you know if you don't have to exchange anything by hand, um, and if you can just use your card to um, automatically purchase something. So it sounds like that's also part of this process as well, perhaps? Yes, absolutely. And several smaller nations uh, among the G10 and G20 have been, uh, or related to the G20 and G10, have been spearheading these experiments, right? We, we need a lot of experiments. You know, you have to see our Western governments, they are responsible overall. They're quite responsible uh, governments and they need to test things to see how people react. Um, and whether some people may not take this as positive, but I try to look at things as neutral objective as I can. And I have to say, at least they're testing things before they announce them. Um, take the example of Switzerland. Um, just a couple of months ago, the Swiss government announced that any cash people hold uh, at home is not going to be accepted anymore. Within a few days, no shop will be accept your, your, your cash. You know? 
We're not talking, talking about the small, the most small change, five francs, ten francs. Talking about the hundred notes, the two hundred notes, the one thousand notes, the big money notes. Uh, commercial uh, entities, businesses were not allowed to accept that cash. People would have to take those cash notes they had at home that they were holding for an emergency, you know, <laughs> to their bank, identify themselves, and there at their bank receive new, brand new money. So the government was able to see also who is bringing the cash, how much cash, uh, etc. right? So it was an amazing test, uh, also uh, raising data, uh, who has the cash, uh, and... Uh, and how much cash actually, right? The, people, the government could actually see how much cash people had on the side. And people will have to bring that cash to the bank, otherwise that, that money is lost, you see? So it's just uh, uh, something uh, quite remarkable that uh, Swiss people would have not accepted, I think two years ago. But now, you know, in this, um, in this world of COVID and um, crypto investments, people are much more open to accept that. So governments can get away with that kind of uh, action as well, right? And it's all a preparation, I believe, responsible preparation by governments to, uh, to, to advance, um, to bring the world to a place where they can uh, actually transition the system to a digital currency. Now, I believe that given the many crises that are around the corner and the many challenges the world is already facing today and the lack of this and the lack of trust in the money the monetary system and policymakers and central banks that for the initial period the digital currency will be linked to gold uh, i've also seen central banks purchasing quite substantial amounts of gold during the recent uh, sell-offs of the past six years, I say six years, seven years, um, on any major sell-off, central banks were purchasing quite substantial amount of gold, uh, of course, off balance sheet. Um, so I feel that um, quite a number of central banks are advocating that at the beginning, such a digital currency would be tied to gold uh, until you know uh, the transition is over and people accept it. So uh, that should, um, that's an option. And that's probably the most likely option in order to give, uh, to build trust. Uh, but once that phase uh, is achieved and certain trust is established in a new system, uh, you will see central banks will also delink again from gold. But uh, well, at the initial state when that is announced, I think gold is likely to go, um, to go, uh, yeah, some people may say through the roof. I think gold will go up above $5,000 at the very least. I think one last question that I could ask you is when do you see all these things converging? Is that something indeed that you think will take place this decade? I know that this is a process that's unfolding. It's not going to happen all at once, uh, but through a succession of various crises. But um, when do you see some of these things coming to a head? I can tell you, Chris, that I was expecting this to pan out within 10 years, uh, by the end or the turn of this, century, uh, this decade, let's say by the year 2030 or 2029. That's when I was expecting this to, to happen, the, the transition to a new currency. Um, but thanks to the explosion of volume, transaction volumes in cryptocurrencies, 
um, which allows central banks to, to raise a lot more data. Uh, most central banks have been able to finish actually quite a number of key central banks behind this project have already finalized all their cryptocurrency test, tests and dry runs. And thanks to COVID, um, I see that um, we have gained a lot of time. I mean, policymakers have gained a lot of time. So uh, this, this is now has been brought forward and I think that it could well be um, around the year 2024 or before that. And now my most likely, if I would have to give a timing, which is difficult, right? We are talking about many, many complex processes here. They are converging, uh, so many factors. And eventually also new factors that may arise and may force governments to wait a little bit longer or bring the whole thing forward. But all things staying the same as they are today, uh, I would say that 2024 is the most likely period for all this to be implemented on the monetary front. Okay. And, and you know, speaking of a great convergence here, it's very interesting because we've been speaking with a, an outfit called ITR Economics on our show for many years. And they've held since at least 2014 a forecast that we will see a Great Depression, not just in the US, but globally in the 2029. 2030 timeframe. And they're looking at uh, a convergence of inflationary forces, demographic forces, and uh, also the exponential growth in debt levels around the globe. All those three things coming together. Uh, it just so happens that, as you said, you know, you um, were originally thinking that 2029, 2030 timeframe, and your research is completely independent of, of ITRs. You're looking at things more from a geopolitical angle and uh, across monetary realms and, and seeing how these are all converging. So it just so happens that your two, two views somewhat converge as well. Yes, yes. And there are some slight deviations. I mean, we're completely independent. Um, but where we deviate here is from their view is that we don't just see uh, high or runaway inflation. We also see deflation. I think the biggest mistake many people are making is by thinking that we're dealing with one big bad scenario. We don't, we're not dealing with one big bad scenario. Printing a lot of money, printing money creates hyperinflation in the long run. But printing money at an accelerated hyperbolic rate over many years produces several scenarios. It produces not just hyperinflation, but also deflation. We're going to be dealing with massive deflation, implosion of certain parts of the economy, implosion of certain balance sheets, and at the same time with runaway inflation in other parts of the economy. We're speaking of a much more vulnerable economy that can easily tip into runaway inflation or deflation or both. And my most likely scenario, or the one most probable scenario uh, for two, three years now is both. Um, deflation and inflation are, are going to be here, which is much more difficult to prepare for, for policymakers and investors. This is the biggest mistake investors are doing, apart from the fact that they're putting most of their money in the Northern Hemisphere, which is going to be ravaged by most of the crises that are coming onto the world over the next 10 years. The Northern Hemisphere is going to be hit very hard. And I think I've told you before, people will be trying to leave the Northern Hemisphere, but they won't. They won't be able to. 
With that said, would you mind, Christian, telling our listeners about some of the research that you offer at your website and the best way to follow more of your work? Thank you. Thank you for asking this. Well, our website's uh, name is uh, www.geopoliticalresearch.com. And uh, there we actually share uh, part of our research, uh, research free, freely, uh, uh, actually, uh, our newsletter subscribers, readers, they get our research immediately. But uh, we do share part of our research uh, slightly re- re- reduced and delayed also with the public. And that we put on, on that website. So you can see, people can see part of our research there. It's a compilation of our different um, you know, research projects. And they span mainly the geopolitical, political, economic and monetary realm, although we also go into some military uh, issues as well. Okay, well, again, if you want to follow more of Christian's work, I'd highly recommend you do so, and you can find all that at geopoliticalresearch.com. Christian, it was a pleasure speaking with you on our show. We definitely look forward to speaking with you in the future. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk